As I uh, begin the intro today, I'm going to provide a couple of pieces of theological jargon for you. And I'm just going to tell you this right now. For some of you, this might be quite interesting. For others of you, if you haven't been going to church for a while, this might be pretty painful, and I apologize for that. So stay with me, okay? So, maybe some of you have heard this idea of systematic theology. Systematic theology. So maybe when you go to college, if you go to Bible college or whatever, you can major in systematic theology. Some of you go, I've, I've never heard such shenanigans. I don't know what the systematic theology stuff is. Well, theology, if you, you know, is like the study of God. And so it's usually something like, okay, we're trying to determine um, what the Bible teaches about God. I mean, maybe you could have theology in other religions or whatnot. Maybe the, you know, Islam has its own theology. But you know, Christ, we're talking about Christian theology, obviously. And then you say, so what's systematic theology? Systematic theology works like this. It's like, what does the Bible say about angels exactly? Like, you know, what, what does the Bible teach about angels? So what a systematic theologian would do is you would go through and find all the times in the Bible that it talks about angels, and then you put them all together. And so you would take all these references to angels. Some of them would be kind of very brief references. As a matter of fact, if you think about it, if you try to think to yourself, is there a text in the Bible that has a very long explanation of how angels work? There isn't. So you really got to kind of piece things together. And this is kind of the job of systematic theology. So systematic theology has these sort of traditional categories. Angels is one. And of course, we got to give it a big name that no one understands, like angelology. Right? I mean, super helpful, isn't it? It's a cool name, you know? And then you got, you got ecclesiology which is like the study of the church. What does the Bible say about the church? And so you have these categories, you know, theology proper is the study of God. You know, theology is the study of God. But we kind of use that in general, so we throw the word proper on there to, you know, help us out. Okay, so this is systematic theology. So you're studying things by subject. So the problem with studying things by subject sometimes, though, is this. Sometimes when you study things by subject, you sort of get trapped into categories, so if I know, as this guy who went to school and studied systematic theology, when I go and read the Bible, every time I go and I look at the text, you know what I always want to do? I want to put everything in a category. I have these nice little boxes. I've got the 10 major doctrines, or if you're fancy, you got 12, and then you just kind of slot them in there. Now, most of you probably don't think in the 10 categories or the 12 categories. You might think it, but you kind of have this box that you sort of say, this is what I know about theology. This is what I know how it works. And every time I read a text of scripture, I'm just going to sort of add it to these categories I already know. And so because we think like this, it's very, it's very efficient for the mind to think like this. It helps us remember. It's, it's very effective, but, okay, but, but sometimes we really get trapped. You know, we start thinking a certain way, and then we keep putting everything in these categories. And if there was something that wouldn't exist in these categories, we can't think outside of it. So, something came along. You know, one guy that's famous for it was the late 1700s, so it's not like it's that recent. But this idea of biblical theology. And if I were to say to you, and you didn't know anything, do you think we should do biblical theology or systematic theology? 
everyone will go, eh, biblical, right? Sounds better to me, right? We want to do what the Bible says. Biblical theology doesn't mean you use the Bible, and systematic theology doesn't use the Bible. Both use the Bible, okay? Systematic theology is based on the Bible. You, you get all of your information from the Bible. But biblical theology, it does a little different. You might go like this. I'm just going to study what Moses teaches. So rather than try to pull everything from every category in the whole Bible, you know, every verse in the whole Bible about a certain category, I'm just going to study the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. I'm just going to study Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and say what that says. Because if you study what Moses says, that's going to come out with something different than if you try to bring in all the New Testament stuff in with it, right? And then you might say, well, what does Paul say? Or what does it say in Romans? Or what does it say in Acts and Luke, like we're in now, right? What does Luke say? And so the benefit of this is when you think more in smaller chunks where you're sort of going through the text and saying, what does this text say? And I'm trying to not think about these categories is it can sometimes kind of break you out of this big slump that you're in. And I want to bring this up today because we are going to be in Acts chapter 2. And Acts chapter 2 talks about the first time in which people in the church speak in tongues. And the way you normally handle this issue of speaking in tongues in the church is in a very systematic way. So when I get to this passage, this is what every ounce of my being wants to do. Okay, guys, we're going to go on a bunny trail, and I'm just going to talk about speaking in tongues this morning. And I'm going to talk about every single passage that talks about speaking in tongues, and then we're going to put it in this category and then I'm going to like say how it all works and then synthesize it all together in a system. Right? That's what a systematic theologian wants to do. I want to put it all together. That's kind of how I'm bent. But today, I'd like us to think a little bit more like, let's, say, let's see what Luke is saying about speaking in tongues. Not what Paul said in Corinthians, but what Luke says about it. And I think if we think this way, we might come about this sort of sometimes controversial passage in a new way. So as we come about Acts chapter 2, the people um, that had followed Jesus, what they're doing now, they're hanging up in the upper room. We think they're still in the upper room. We're not positive, I don't think, but they're probably still there. And they are in this process of waiting, and the time of Pentecost has come. Now, the name Pentecost is a Greek word, actually. Penta, five, you know. And, and the reason this word Pentecost started being used for a Jewish festival is because it happens like a 50 days after an important Jewish event. So they got kind of associated with this idea of 50, so they started using Pentecost, and they started using it in the normal vernacular. But really this is, in Jewish terms, this would be like the Feast of Weeks is one event they would call it. And this is one of the three festivals in which a lot of people come to Jerusalem to celebrate. So because a lot of people come to the Jerusalem to celebrate, there's going to be a lot of different ethnicities and um, a lot of people that speak a different language as their primary language. Okay, So this is like this big time. We don't really have events like this in America anymore. Or, or, uh, anymore, I'd, I'd have to think about whether we had them at all to this degree. I mean, can you think of an event where it's like, we're all celebrating this event, and so we're all going to go to this one city to do it. I mean, I, I can't think of a, you know, sporting events, kind of, maybe it could be some kind of a 
but but wouldn't be to this degree. I mean, every person that is supposed to be Jewish that follows the same religion is supposed to be coming together this particular time. I mean, we have denominational meetings, but I mean, everyone in the denomination doesn't even show up. I mean, this is supposed to be like every Jewish person that is celebrating this festival is supposed to be in Jerusalem at this time. So that kind of brings us to where we are as we begin. And if we could, uh, as we look at verse 1 here, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So we think this is still the upper room, but we're not sure. It probably is. But we know this is probably a place that was accessible to the public, and we'll see why that is going to be true. Eventually, the whole uh, city of Jerusalem kind of finds out what's going on. So as it described what's happening here, you have to realize this is like a real shorthand explanation. It is a real sh- I mean, how is it that the people are going to hear what's going on in this room? It just skips a lot of steps, and you'll see that. So as we go on to verse 2, it says, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house while they were sitting. So they're waiting in this room, this place, and this rushing wind comes in. I, I almost kind of think of it like the breath of God comes in. And this is the time of this monumental change within the worship of the one true God, in which we go from a, the Holy Spirit having one role to this new role in which the Holy Spirit indwells people and becomes active in people's lives. This is an incredibly important event, all tied up into this rushing wind. Then we go on to verse 3, and it says, And divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. So the wind comes through, and tongues of fire appear on their head, Once again, I'd like to remind us, we are not thinking systematically. Well, how does this work with what they were doing in Corinth? Not thinking that way. We're saying, what was going on then? There was a rushing wind that came through, and there was tongues of fire that peered on their head. You know, the the fire idea, the burning bush, the pillar of fire gets used in the Bible a lot as sort of described as God's all-consuming presence. Divine activity is often associated with it. As a matter of fact, Steve and Alex will tell you that we joke sometimes about worship songs having the word fire in them all the time, you know. We sang one of them today, Soul on Fire, right? We joke that people that write worship songs use the word fire. Part of the reason that is true is because fire is so often used in the Old Testament, or the, the Bible, to talk about divine activity. So we have these tongues of fire resting over their heads. And then it says... And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So they had these fire above their head, and they began to speak in other tongues. Now, sometimes there's this debate, if you're thinking systematically, are speaking in tongues human languages, or are they heavenly languages, like angelic language or or something unique like that? Well, guess what? We're not going to think systematically. We're going to think like biblical theologians. And if we look at this, and they began to speak in tongues, 
And we see what's going to happen. I'm going to argue there is like no question in this case here in Acts chapter 2, they are speaking real languages. Real languages. And as they speak these languages, we'll see in the continuing verses that other people were able to understand them. And sometimes the debate is, do they, is the miracle in the hearing? Or is the miracle in the speaking? Meaning, let's say they were all speaking, all the people that were filled with the Holy Spirit were speaking English, which of course they weren't, but let's all pretend they were. They're speaking English, and the miracle is that everyone that hears them, hears them in their own language. Is that the miracle? Or is the miracle that the people speaking are actually speaking in different languages? Which is the miracle? Is the miracle in the hearing? Or is the miracle in the speaking? Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, so that we had the diaspora. I, I'm not going to explain that right now, but this is probably in view. Devout men, this probably doesn't mean people that were necessarily saved, but people that were just dedicated to the Jewish faith, so it's not like they'd all converted to Christianity at this point. We go on to verse 6, and at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. They are confused, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So this is where it gets to sounding like the miracles in the hearing. It really does sound like the miracles in the hearing, right? They each hearing them speak in his own language. I'm going to argue the miracle was in the speaking, however. This is why. Who were the ones filled with the Holy Spirit? It wasn't the people that were hearing that were filled with the Holy Spirit. It was the people that were speaking that were filled with the Holy Spirit. How many, about how many people do we think were in the upper room? We don't know. I think at one point I threw that there might be like as many as 120. So if there are many different disciples up in this area that had been blessed with the Holy Spirit, that had been filled with the Holy Spirit, would not many different nations be able to come and the different people be able to speak to them in their own language? I mean, of course they could. It's not as if we had to have a situation where we had one person talking in English and everyone else hearing him in their own words because there was many people there that had been filled with the Holy Spirit. So therefore, they could have been speaking to different groups in different languages. And this is another kind of annoyance with the shorthand nature of this explanation. It's like, well, did they break up into small groups? You know, like how did this work exactly? It really doesn't give us a fantastic explanation. So I know I could be wrong that the miracle was in the speaking and the hearing. I just think it is because I think God filled the people with the Holy Spirit and they were the ones that God was working the miracle through, not the people that were hearing. So these people that come, they hear people speaking in their own language. Of course, the people speaking their language did not know these languages before, and now they are speaking into them. So once again, I'm arguing these are real languages that they are speaking. We go on to verse 7, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? It's like, how can it possibly be? I'm, you know, I got booted out of here a long time ago. through the diaspora, you know, the, the, the Romans came and so on and so forth. And, you know, we had various times of activity, so the Jews are spread all over the planet, you know. I mean, how could they possibly know 
my local dialect. I mean, that is just like, there's like a thousand people in the whole world that know my little local dialect, yet they seem to know, and they're speaking in my language. You know, when you travel to foreign countries, it's super fun, I think anyway. I think it's really fun. A lot of people get nervous about traveling to foreign countries, and the one thing that can really make one nervous is, it is, when you don't know what's going on, and you can't find anyone that speaks English, it can, the anxiety can really build up, right? I mean, I don't know what's going on. I mean, even simple things. I'm not sure which line to get into. I can't find the restroom. You know, just things that aren't that big a deal that are going to be fine. They're going to be fine. But when you can't figure it out, you can't read any of the signs, you know, unless you're Zelbano and you're you know somewhere that speaks Spanish, that's about the only other one I got. So, you know, it can be really nerve-wracking. So you can imagine these people coming and hearing people speak in their own languages and sort of the immediate comfort that would provide. You know, you're coming from a other place. You come to Jerusalem. You're, you know, maybe you speak enough of whatever it is to get around. Maybe you speak a little Greek so you can kind of, you know, stumble your way around the city, but then suddenly hear your home language would be such a comfort. And how is it that we hear each of us his own native language? Once again, it mentions the hearing, so this could be another argument for the miracle being in the hearing. I'm not going to return to that subject particularly. So then we got a list of some of the places. This is likely not like a exhaustive list, okay? But the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, go on to verse 10. Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and the visitors from Rome. We had a lot of variety going on here. Both Jews and proselytes. So you say, well, what's a proselyte? So this is, some of you probably know this, so bear with me, but just so interesting. When you become a Christian, you decide, I want to become a follower of Christ. It, it's a big life change. It's, you know, depending on the way you were living your life before, it could be a massive life change. But if you were back in the Old Testament, prior to the Holy Spirit coming the church beginning, and you said to yourself, I want to be a follower of the one true God. You know what you had to do? You had to become a Jew, basically. You had to become circumcised. You had to start following their laws and ways. Guess what happened when they had the, one of the three events in Jerusalem every year? You went to those, right? You know, you could become a Christian in China now. It's not like you have to suddenly say, well, now I've got to take on all American customs and show up to, you know, New York once a year, three times a year. No, no, no. But in that day, when you decided to be a follower of one true God, you had to completely shift your life around. And these were proselytes. These were people that were not originally born Jews. They decided to follow the one true God. And so they shifted their whole life. And so both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? So those that believed 
or didn't think it was some kind of trick. They were trying to figure out what in the world was going on. And then, of course, those that were skeptical said, but others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. A couple things I'd like us to think about as we see this response. You know, sometimes you say to yourself, if God would just come do a bunch of big miracles, everybody would believe. You know, just come and part a seed or something, you know, just do something awesome, get this whole thing over with. We'll all believe then, right? We'll all believe then. Just do a big, crazy miracle. We'll all be good to go. The Holy Spirit comes. The big transition's made. There's a whole bunch of people that get to watch it. He provides this wonderful miracle to prove it, right? So often when there's big changes and how God works with people, he backs it up with this big miracle. Big miracle! All these people are speaking these languages, some of them they've never heard of. Wow, this is great. Big miracle. Going to believe now? No. no. The hardness of the human heart, the ability to push against God, is impressive. It's impressive. And we see the, so many of the people here that see this incredible miracle that got to be a part of history, biblical history, that all so many of us would just love to be. I remember someone told me just the other day they loved the time travel, right? So it'd be fun to see, you know, Jesus speak or whatever, some biblical event. You know, if you're thinking about which biblical event you'd like to go see, this might be one of the big ones on the list. Wouldn't it be really great to be there? You think, boy, if we could just show everyone this event, then they would believe. People that were there watched it happen. Even they didn't believe. We as humans need God to come and soften our hearts for salvation, I, I, I think. I, I think we have an incredible ability to sin and do what's wrong. So, got two more things I want us to think about. First of all, related back to my nerdy introduction, I think, for those of you who've been thinking about the speaking tongues thing for a while, I think we should consider this. Maybe, I've been wrong before, right? But maybe, maybe what's going on in Acts 2 is like quite a bit different than what was going on in Corinth. You know, we kind of tend to want to really put them together and act like they're the same thing and create a systematic system on how they work. And that's another lesson for another day. But maybe we should think about it like, well, in Acts they had tongues of fire over their head. I don't recall that going on in Corinth. In Corinth, it's like very clear in Corinthians that you need to have an interpreter for speaking in tongues. But Acts chapter 2 has no interpreter. So how do you put this together? So I just want you to think about like maybe those two events are, are like pretty different from each other and trying to kind of smash them together might not be a good idea. Second thing I'd like you to think about this, you know, it's a great thing to go to camp every once in a while, and that's why. You know, my introduction and kind of one of my conclusions was sort of this systematic, nerdy, biblical, blah, 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 right? 
But then you go to church camp and you remember how simple the message of the gospel really is. You know, we can, we can befuddle the greatest thinkers in the world with our nerdy nerdiness. But then when it all comes down to it, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Why? To proclaim the sinful message that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. And all we have to do is put our faith and trust in him, or we can spend an eternity there. And so whether we figure out whether their Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians are the same or separate or whatever, I'm so thankful that the simple message that sometimes we just hear at church camp, that Jesus Christ came to die for us, and the Holy Spirit has come, is here for us today to help us spread that message. It's powerful. It's powerful. Let's pray. Dear, we thank you for this wonderful morning. We just thank you so much for sending the Holy Spirit. So if we are willing to put our faith and trust in you, we can be cleansed from our sin. That we can become white as snow. That, that the hardness of a heart that we saw in Acts chapter 2, the willingness to push away, Lord, we know we have it. We know we have it. Each of us has it. But we are just so thankful that you've given us a way out. That you sent your son to be put in place for us if we just put our faith and trust in you. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.